0: Today is February 14th, 2013, and my guest is Yanis Varoufakis of the University of Athens and the University of Texas. He is the author of The Global Minotaur and he is the economist in residence at Valve Corporation. Yanis, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: It is very good to be here.
0: We're going to talk to begin with about Valve, which uh, I found out about because a number of listeners and readers of mine told me that I had to do a podcast about Valve. And uh, I started to look into it, and they were right. It's a really good idea because Valve is a very unusual corporation. So describe first what they produce, uh, what's their output, and tell us about their structure, which is particularly unusual.
1: Well, they're a video game company. Uh, It was started by Gabe Newell, uh, who was a Microsoft uh, high-ranking software development officer. Who cashed in his shares in 1996, I believe, and uh, together with Mike Harrington, a colleague of his, they set up this video game company. But what is astonishing about this video game company is that, at some point, a couple of years after its initial inception, uh, it went into the world of multiplayer internet-based games, and this makes uh, this is of significance because when you you create single-player games that are on CD-ROMs and you just sell them, you're just like any other company. But the moment you create multiplayer, real-time, online video games, effectively, you put together a community of players and you create uh, virtual environments for them to have fun within, but you don't control what they do. So they start doing all sorts of interesting things with one another, like, for instance, transacting and creating spontaneously and without anyone having imagined that that would happen, social economies. So that's what Valve does, and the way that it has uh, pushed uh, aside the great divide between consumers and producers, designers and uh, Uh, shapers of communities has had a major impact also on the way that uh, Valve Corporation employees relate to one one another.
0: So describe that relationship. There doesn't seem to be anyone in charge.
1: The uh, most astonishing aspect of life at Valve is that indeed there are no bosses. It contains no explicit hierarchy and it is based on uh, what several members of the company have described to me as the principles of anarcho-syndicalism, effectively a free association of employees with one another. As we, you know, Google prides itself for allowing its employees 10% of their time to do what, to work on whatever project it is that they want to work on. At Valve, they take enormous pride at having pushed that 10% up to 100%. So it is a bit disconcerting for people who first enter Valve because there's no one there to tell them what to do. So it's a flat management, uh, spontaneous order kind of operation, which, uh, creates a very interesting phenomenon from a managerial perspective and actually from the perspective of people who actually try to live and work within it.
0: And let's start by talking about the hiring process, which obviously you know, they, they're very careful about who they hire. Uh, do you know anything about how they go about that, what the process is?
1: Yes, I did participate in a few hirings. Um, it, 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 they're very careful to, to be faithful to their principles of not allowing themselves to fall prey to the lure of hierarchy. So the way it works is very simple. Let's say you and I have a chat in the corridor or in some conference room or wherever, and we, the result of this chat is that we uh, converge to the view that we need an additional software engineer or animator or artist or Hardware person, or several of them. What we can do is we can send an email to the rest of the of our colleagues involved, um, inviting them to join us in forming a search committee that actually looks for these people without seeking anyone's permission uh, in, in in the hierarchy simply because there is no hierarchy, and then we form spontaneously the search committee and uh, we interview people first by Skype, then we bring them, if they pass that test, to the company for a more you know, sort of face-to-face, personalized interview. And anyone who wants to participate uh, does participate. And then at, during that day, because it's usually is a day-long event, uh, emails are fired all over the place uh, You know, with views whether this person should be hired or not until some consensus is reached where there is effectively no one vetoing the hire of that particular person.
0: And so there's no human resources department uh, as there would be, say, in a traditional corporation. But what do they pay that person? Who decides that?
1: This is a haphazard process. Um, The payment mechanism is, to a very large extent, bonus-based. So the, the, the contracts usually have a minimum pay uh, segment in it, which is more or less established by tradition. And then the, 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 you know, the, whole, the interest and the interesting part <laughs> in this contract is how much is left to the peer review process, which is very complicated. It involves various layers of uh, mutual assessment. And you know, in companies like Microsoft or elsewhere, usually the the bonus is, is something between eight and 20 percent of the basic salary. In Valve, I've, I've been told uh, the, there's no upper limit to bonuses, and bonuses can end up being five, six, ten times the level of the basic wage.
0: So, who designed that peer review, that complicated peer review process? Did that emerge also from interactions among the employees? Or was that, uh, is there somebody who, like Gabe Newell, who started the company, did he decide what that peer review process would look like?
1: I thought not you would be surprised to hear that it's a combination of the two. The anarcho-syndicalist structure of the corporation owes a great deal to Gabe Newell because Gabe had this view from the beginning. He wanted a community of partners. He didn't want to be the boss of anyone or to be bossed around by anyone. And, but, but at the same time, he couldn't imagine the current uh, social conventions that, that govern, um, you know, the relations of production within with, with Valve. Uh, he could not have uh, seen that far ahead. They evolved organically within, their co- within the, the corporation. And can you get fired? Oh yes.
0: And
1: how would oh, that, how would that absolutely. happen uh firing people is hard I mean, in in an syndicalist uh, environment, but uh it does happen I've seen it happen, and it's never pretty, but it involves uh various uh, communications at first to when somebody is underperforming or somebody doesn't seem to be fit to, to, to fit in with 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 the rest of the company in many occasions people simply don't fit in not because they're not productive or good people but because they they just can't function very well in a bossless environment and then there are a series of discussions between co-workers and the person whose firing is being canvassed or discussed and at some point if there is there seems there is no way that uh, uh, a consensus can emerge that this person has to stay, can stay, um, some attractive uh, uh, offer is uh, made to that particular person, and usually they an amicable part in the ways.
0: But in this company, uh, you can work on whatever you want to work on. So if you're not getting along with, say, the three people or the eight people or whatever it is on your team, you can just I assume you can leave at any time. You can join any team you want. I assume you can leave at any time. So one way to get fired, I suppose, is to leave a lot of teams and not be able to find one. Uh, can you hide? Does, does <laughs> would, would someone notice if you weren't involved, since you don't have a boss, would someone notice that you weren't on any teams?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, it may take longer than in a normal hierarchical corporation, to work out that uh, somebody has fallen out of the system. But look, it is important to understand that um, such uh, spontaneous order-based enterprises rely to a large extent on individuals who actually believe in the social norms that govern their existence. So uh, by the very nature of the beast, you don't have people in there who try to hide and who try to to, to somehow create a smokescreen around the fact that they are not very good at what they do. Uh, Most of the people who are there, if not all of them, have been handpicked to be excellent at what they do. They're usually at the top of their game elsewhere before they join the corporation. And uh, the mobility within the corporation is a great asset. And everybody recognizes it. Everybody's desk is on wheels. Uh, there are only two uh, plugs that need to be unplugged in order to shift from one team to another. Uh, there have been, I'm sure, I haven't been, I wasn't with the company long enough to notice, but there must have been situations where uh, somebody didn't fit in and eventually was edged out of the company. But the vast majority of such moves simply contribute to the overall, overall overall efficiency and to the private joy of working there.
0: And, of course, in a traditional corporation, you can hide from the boss in other ways. You know, you can, you can loaf and take it easy and take credit for things you didn't do, and there's a lot of opportunities in a traditional corporation for that kind of behavior.
1: And, 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 and the worst part of traditional corporations, of course, is that you create a lot of work for people under you, so that you seem important. Yeah. <laughs> Work that is unnecessary.
0: Correct. In this case, though, you know, as well-meaning as some people can be, you know, when you when you have a baby, uh, whether you're a, a man or a woman, and when a baby enters your house, uh, it's sometimes difficult to sleep at night. It's sometimes just t- things that have to get done during the day. It gets a lot harder to be a, a reliable citizen. Sure. So there must be some temptations occasionally for
1: that kind of behavior. certainly is, and there are frictions, too. One of the tasks that is very difficult to find people willing to do them is managing other people. Because, (laughs) as I said, the the, the vast majority, if not all the people at Valve are highly creative people who want to produce stuff that actually improves the experience of the customer base. So... Taking leave from this creative process and organizing, <coughs> managing the work of others, as sometimes one needs to do, is a chore. And it's very hard to find people who want to do it with Valve. And this is one of the great <laughs> impediments uh, that is being faced by anyone in the company.
0: So one of the issues that, that you think about, I, I mean, I'm, somebody put the uh, Valve Employee Manual Employee Handbook online. And I assume it's real. Uh, it's very charming and whimsical. So one one excerpt says, method to working without a boss. Step one, come up with a bright idea. Step two, tell a coworker about it. Step three, work on it together. Step four, ship it. Uh, so that sounds nice. It's simple. But somebody's got to decide when to ship. Maybe that's the team. What about advertising? Uh, how are those decisions made? Uh it's not an anarcho-syndicalist company. Um it's not everybody doesn't make all the decisions together. They don't all sit around, right, and and, and make all these decisions in long dreary meetings. I, something else must be there to make these decisions.
1: You'll be astounded to 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 see how it's done. It's done in a totally decentralized fashion. So if we're working on a particular game, you and me and uh, we come up with an update that we want to ship, we ship it, and we don't tell anyone. Regarding advertising and marketing, the interesting thing here is that while you have this anarcho syndicalist, bossless environment within the company, the company itself, looking at it from a political economy point of view, has created a great deal of monopoly power in the marketplace. The creation of the platform, the electronic platform for trading video games called STEAM, was a major breakthrough for for the company because Steam is like an electronic market for video games. It handles about 70% of all sales of video games, not just of Valve's, everybody's around the world. There are about 55 million people that have active online accounts on Steam. So I'm saying this in order to answer your question about advertising and marketing. Valve doesn't need it. It actually doesn't do it. It doesn't indulge at all in any of those activities. It has created an internationally global marketplace It has an amazingly good name amongst customers, primarily because a very interesting combination of a kind of an anarchic structure within the company. Um, a, a, a distribution of income which is almost socialist within the company and a Schumpeterian kind of uh, market vertical uh, uh, market structure that is founded on pure monopoly principles really.
0: You say it's socialist the, uh, within the company Aren't some people making much larger bonuses than others?
1: Yes, but th- those bonuses are not determined on the basis of ownership of shares. They're determined on the basis of what everybody thinks everybody else should be getting. Yeah, it's not egalitarian. Everybody I guess, is a better way. To when say I it. asked how this works uh, years ago, two years ago, when I first made, made Gabe, um, he said we use the Eurovision Song Contest principle. <laughs> And <laughs> to me remind viewers or actually tell listeners who are not uh, familiar with this awful European institution. Yeah, what is it? It's a Euro, the Eurovision Song Contest. It's a terrible idea. It's been going on, on, on for 50 years now. But what happens is, you know, every, every country is represented with one awful song usually. And then, you know, um, uh, spe- uh, the audience votes in, um, you know, the best song and that country wins. But... No uh, British citizen, for instance, has the right to vote in favor of the British song. Uh, They can vote for all the other songs, but not for their own. So I was told that this is a principle. So what happens when it comes to determining bonuses, you can vote uh, in favor of somebody else getting a bonus, but you can't vote for yourself.
0: That's a a good idea. Tell, Tell us a little bit about the actual products. I'm not a video gamer, Uh, What are some of their most successful games and where do they stand in terms of the marketplace? Are they widely recognized as – you said they're widely recognized as a a quality firm and producing quality games. But tell us a little bit more about their market position.
1: Well, I have a terrible confession to make here. I'm not a video gamer either, and I know very little. – I'm actually quite (laughs) pathetic at playing video games. And I'm not that interested in them either. Uh, uh, the games that uh, but, but people old. tell me,
0: yeah.
1: I'm too old for that, that's right, you know, old dogs and new tricks don't mix very easily. Um, but because of my involvement with Valve, I've asked around, I've asked, uh, you know, nephews and nieces, uh, younger p- people in their 20s and 30s and 40s even, who know about this market, and these products, and they tell me that Valve's games are exemplary. Uh, the successful stories are games like Counter-Strike, Team Fortress uh, Team Fort- Fortress 2, Half-Life, which was one I think was their first. There's one which is um, uh, very interesting from the perspective that it involves team play. It's called DOTA, and it stands for Defense of the Ancients. Uh, various such games. And, of course, there is Portal, which is aesthetically very pleasing. In terms of the architecture of the environment in which you find yourself, if you play it, so Valve is not uh, doesn't that hasn't cornered the market in terms of its actual games. It's more like a niche player. Its games are popular, but they are not the most popular amongst video games. But those who actually are in the know, they think that they are just, you know, they're just like the BMWs or the Maseratis of the video game world. But the greatest success from an entrepreneurial point of view is Steam because Steam is, as I said, the global trading place where you buy all sorts of games, not just Valve games, but everybody else's.
0: And, and they – I want to understand this, Did they create Steam? Yes. Okay. Um, now, is Valve growing in terms of employees?
1: It is growing steadily. Um, around 30 or 40 people a year. And in terms of revenues, I've heard uh, remarkable numbers ranging between 30 and 50 percent every year.
0: And so the question I think you've wondered about and others have is how big can it get? Is, it, is there a limit with this kind of non-hierarchical structure? Will it maybe at one point level off or could it keep growing? What are your thoughts?
1: Well, uh, let me inform you that the founders of the company, Gabe and Mike, when they started the company in 1996, thought that their natural limit would be around something between 30 and 50 people. This is what they tell me. Now it's more than 300. So the scale that they've already reached is much greater than they had anticipated. So the, the fear that they had that anything above 30 or 50 people would not be consistent with this anarcho model of management has not been realized yet. So the big question is, uh, what is that limit? And there is a secondary question, uh, but it's not of secondary import- importance, and that is, how would a company like that handle contraction? Because at the moment we have uh, a very significant growth rate. Well, corporations... Uh, uh, prove their effectiveness and their resilience at times of recession. And uh, even though Valve has experienced a major recession around it, its own market has been going from strength to strength.
0: Now, how did you get involved? And how much time do you spend on this? I, I love your title. You're called Economist in Residence. Most companies <laughs> don't have an economist in residence, they have a chief economist or an economist period um, how did you get involved and what's your interaction with them uh, over the course of a year and is it fun
1: well in November 2011 I was about to, to visit the United States I was living in Greece at the, to- at the, at the time uh, on a book tour and I received an email from Gabe which I nearly deleted because you know I thought it was spam and what do I know about video games and why would a video game Chief executive wanted to talk to me, so I thought it was. But uh, it struck me that he was interested in my work on uh, the eurozone and my criticisms of the way that the euro crisis was being handled by the powers that be in Europe. And he made he drew this uh, what I thought was a fascinating parallel between the problems they were having at Steam uh, when different communities of video gamers met one another on that electronic platform and started trading with one another. And then his fear that uh, uh, something like the Eurozone would emerge on, on Steam. So, I, you know, that was enough to get my attention. And, and that's, that's incredibly me, cool. <laughs> that's right. So he, he invited me to go to Seattle and, and chat with them. And when I went, I thought, right, okay, I'm going there to, to go there for two days to have a brief conversation with them, consult with them, and then that's it. But then they offered me... Uh, the position of an economist, you know, of actually, they, they offered me an, an incredible opportunity to look into into their data set. Because the amazing thing about these social economies that emerge uh, on Steam is that they are very large barter economies where you have perfect information of everything that has ever happened in that economy. So, they, you know, they, they were interested in me, I was interested in them, and also they allowed me to retain my academic. Frame of mind in the sense that I felt no pressure to produce opinions that were um, more suited to the company's interests because I am an academic and I want to retain my academic freedom and also um even though I agreed to be an economist in residence in the sense of you know being stationed there, very soon Gabe and I came to the to to the understanding that um, I need to be at the university, so that's why I'm now stationed at Austin and I'm teaching at the University of Texas. So I'm no longer in residence, but I keep working with Gabe Newell and consulting with them and having a great deal of fun doing that.
0: And a while back, uh, a little while ago, you wrote a an essay, a blog post on the nature of spontaneous order and, and the intellectual antecedents of uh, valve structure. Talk about about that, talk about what uh, Valve has to do with Hume and Smith and Hayek, and then I think we'll get to Coase.
1: And those are all (laughs) names we've talked about here. Okay, I hope we have about 20 hours to talk about properly. We have plenty of time. I know we don't. (laughs) Okay, look, the the basic idea that uh, Adam Smith got from David Hume was that you don't really need a central authority to tell the members of a community or a society or a village or whatever, what to do. Uh, The prisoner's dilemma problems that Thomas Hobbes was very concerned about in Leviathan will somehow resolve themselves uh, in an evolutionary manner as people learn to follow conventions that uh, in the end select themselves on the basis of some kind of social selection process. Smith developed that basic idea of David Hume's into the invisible hand. The idea being that uh, needs can be provided for better when no central authority is trying to provide for them. And uh, by allowing free flow of private initiative uh, uh, to to remain unrestrained by central authority, uh, private vices are going to be combined as if by an invisible hand in order to produce public virtues. Now, that was the beginning, if you want, of uh, political economics with Adam Smith. Of course, after that, we had uh, major debates that are occasioned by, uh, econo- uh, by theoretical objections to this view, also by economic events. So, periods of recession, periods of crisis where free markets uh, failed in different circumstances, both in Europe and the United States, Gave rise to different treatises, like, for instance, you know, David Ricardo objected to some of the aspects of Smith's optimism. Um, later, another liberal, John Maynard Keynes, following the uh, nineteen twenty nine and the stubbornness of the Great Depression. So, we, I, we economists have you know, we, we can we can go on and on and on about those things. But the interesting aspect of That emerged spontaneously on Steam is that they come as close as one can get to this idea that Smith had of uh, creating public virtues out of private vices, which later was uh, elevated onto a different level by Friedrich von Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, and the Austrian tradition. Now, I am not, unlike you, (laughs) a Hayekian or a New Austrian, even though I have a great deal of uh, respect for their views when it comes to the real economy. But it seems to me that these uh, digital economies, it is as if they were created uh, for the purposes of giving us a real-life example of Hayek and von Mises and Adam Smith at work. Because, they lack the two problematic markets that the real economy has. They lack the markets that throw a spanner in the works of spontaneous order and of free competition. And these markets are the markets for capital and the market for labour. In these digital economies, you have pure exchange economies, and you can see how well they work, even though they have a tendency to create bubbles in a way that Hayek would know and understand very well, which then get deflated. And that rejuvenates these digital economies. Uh, But they lack a labor market. It's not that they, they, they lack labor or production. Indeed, I was fascinated to find out that there is a lot of labor involved in these markets and a lot of production. Let me give you a figure which is actually quite astonishing. There are hundreds of thousands of people around the world today as we speak, in the United States, in China, in the Ukraine, in Russia, who make a very good living out of being producers on Steam, and by producers, what I mean, they are designers. They design um, electronic uh, um, assets, like for instance, a hat or a particular sort of ear muff that you can wear. You can put on your avatar. Uh, so they design these, they put them on Steam, like you can you can, you can be an apps uh, an an app producer or designer and put it on iTunes. And share the revenue with Apple. Similarly, there are designers who do that. They produce assets for Valve and share the revenue with Valve. So there's a lot of production, and there's a lot of labor, but there is no labor market. Labor markets are very specific.
0: Everybody is uh, self-employed.
1: Everybody is self-employed. Effectively, <laughs> yeah, you work, you produce something, and you sell that something. You are not hiring or renting your labor out to a. A capitalist, to somebody who is, you know, who owns property and therefore commands your labor in order to, uh, utilize it so as to produce some other commodity which is alienated from you and then it's sold on. And it seems to me that, you know, if you're a Hayekian, the economy of steam should be a place that uh, holds a great deal of interest to you and a place that you really want to study as, as well as you can.
0: Yeah, we, we did an interview a long time ago with Edward Castronova, who is an economist interested in in the virtual world of these massively uh, online multiplayer games. And I, mm-hmm. I he was very, um, this was a while ago, but he was very optimistic about their impact and what we would learn from them. I don't, I don't think that promise has been realized completely, but I do think, um, as you point out, there's hundreds of thousands of people right now working on those markets in st- ways that most economists are there's – a, there's a revolution going on in some dimension that most economists aren't thinking about. But let's stick with Valve. Indeed, there is. But let's stick with Valve and in, its employee structure, which is a different part of this – I like to say emergent order. I know spontaneous order is, a, is, the, is the standard term, but it, Steam, which is a place where these online players interact and – Buy and sell and play. That's one market or emergent order. Another is is Valve itself, which, mm-hmm. because of the lack of hierarchy, is a um, sort of I, I would call it the uncorporation. It's the, you know, Coast and others have pointed out that uh, how ironic it is that in capitalism uh, the corporations don't act like capitalists. Typically, they don't use prices to allocate goods and and people. They use command and control. They use top-down. But Valve is a corporation that's trying to use as little top-down as possible, which is extraordinary. And um, as you point out, you can have a merchant order without prices. There's a lot of interesting <clears throat> emergent orders that have prices in them. There are a lot of them. Standard markets for things that people buy and sell are examples of that. But Hume, and I think, Smith, you suggest not in your essay, but we'll come to that probably certainly hume and, and smith and i think hayek also understood that there were emergent orders that functioned without prices so talk about valve as an emergent order without prices its employee relationships how does that work
1: what's doing the order
0: what's doing the ordering when there aren't prices
1: well it's social norms it's 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 a humean world I did mention it before that uh, disciplinary devices in the valve are far less important. Formal disciplinary devices or processes are far less important than self self-regulation on the basis of social conventions that emerge in precisely the way, the way that Hume was describing artificial virtues in uh, his treatise on human nature. Um, so, in in a in a in a social economy like that, with Valve, uh, you have a number of rewards that are not related to money. The way in which these people interact. Remember, as I said before, these people are at the top of their individual game. They're the top engineers, the top software developers, the top animators. You know, people who worked on the you know. Uh, Lord of the Rings movies, and the the, the, the the sheer satisfaction of having shipped something that then gets rave reviews by the customer base on Steam is not to be scoffed at. It is a major reward system, and uh, given also that you have abundance of money in a company like Valve, you know, when you have one point five, more than one billion. Uh, dollars revenue, and you have three hundred and something people to share it. Then you, you are not operating exactly under conditions of scarcity. So when you're not, especially when you're not operating under conditions of scarcity, all the other uh, social rewards that one gets from great reviews on, on, the, on their output, uh, and, and, are the, part respect, and of,
0: the respect of your peers uh, in, in your workplace, of course, status, status if you want,
1: status and uh, and the respect of the people that you respect. Yeah. <laughs> that, that way you overcome the, the the master-slave Hegelian paradox.
0: But that's, very, that's very Smithian. You get
1: respect from people you respect.
0: That's very Smithian. <laughs> it's just not the Smith of the Wealth of Nations. It's the Smith of the Theory of Moral Sentiments. Of the
1: Theory of the Moral Sentiments, indeed. Indeed, precisely. But you see, we economists always make a mistake of reading The Wealth of Nations without the Theory of the Moral Sentiments. <laughs> and Smith never expected us to do that. He thought that we would build... a uh, Upon the theory of the moral sentiments, the invisible hand, but the economists don't do that agreed. to their great detriment.
0: Yeah, agree. But that's, I just want to add that footnote because the Smith wasn't so interested in creating public virtues out of private vices. He was aware of it, but he was also interested in creating private virtues and hoping that would lead to even more public virtue. I think.
1: Yes, that's 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 that's, that's quite right. That's quite right. Now the other thing which I think will interest you about Valve, and it's is. The, the, the way in which the internal ethos is uh, spreading to the steam community, to the com- community of customers. What I believe is exceptionally important is the very, the, the very fast uh, removal of the barrier, of the hard barrier, separating the customers from the producers the customers of Valve from the people who work at Valve. And you, you, that, that, that uh, diminution, that removal of this borderline takes many different shapes and, and forms. Let me give you just one example. i already mentioned the example where customers are actually p- turning into designers. And now people at Valve realize that there is no way they can compete with their customer base in terms of productivity of electronic assets. That that I think is quite significant.
0: Say that again. They uh, can't compete with what? With their
1: with their customer base in terms of pro- producing electronic assets for their games, uh-huh, right? So in house, they try to develop you know new shields and new guns and new 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 stuff that uh, you would want to put on your avatar if you're a player, right? But the in house production of these assets. Uh, fades into insignificance compared to what the community can now produce so the the strict separation of producer and consumer has gone effectively and Valve is now uh, in in the process of blending production and consumption uh, across this divide let me give you another example that Gabe Newell told me once and um, he keeps repeating it because fascinated by this, there are thousands of employees of other companies, and some, some of them are competing companies, for, uh, competing vis-a-vis Valve, who make more money producing these assets for the Valve ecosystem than the, than the salary that they draw from the, the company that employs them, <laughs> because they do it in their spare time. So all sorts of dividing lines are receding. So
0: the other effect that I think would happen is it would put some pressure on other companies if they want to keep their designers to either become like Valve or do something different. I'm going to read another excerpt here from the the employee handbook. It's uh, subtitled The Office. <clears throat> it says, sometimes things around the office can seem a little too good to be true. If you find yourself walking down the hall one morning with a bowl of fresh fruit and Stumptown roasted espresso, dropping off your laundry to be washed, and heading into one of the massage rooms, don't freak out. All these things are here for you to actually use. And don't worry that somebody's going to judge you for taking advantage of it. Relax. And if you stop on the way back from your massage to play darts or work out in the valve gym or whatever, it's not a sign that this place is going to come crumbling down like some 1999-era dot-com startup. If we ever institute caviar-catered lunches, though, then maybe something's wrong. Definitely panic if there's caviar. So if you're reading that from now that this is online and you work somewhere where there isn't the massage room, of course, a lot of them, I'm sure there are other places that have darts and maybe espresso, but um, this looks like a very fun place to work, and I would think there might be some copying going on eventually if this is a successful model.
1: Yes, there will be. And already there have been a number of uh, corporations, uh, of companies, that um, have been in contact with Valve to try to pick their brains as to how they can move in that direction. But let me tell you what my view on this is. It's not very easy to do. The point I want to make is this. If you've already created a company which is hierarchical, it is exceptionally hard to push it. In the direction of the flat management model, I agree. You can use massage rooms, you can introduce, you know, espresso machines. But once you have some people who have, who learn how to exercise authoritarian power on others, uh, and others who learn to live under the authoritarian power of their bosses to create the social conventions of equality that are necessary to run the valve model is absolutely impossible. You need to deprogram these people. And uh, once power infects their mind, it's very difficult to find a disinfectant.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. It's very difficult to create corporate culture generally, and it's certainly hard to change it. And it usually requires somebody like a founder like a Gabe Newell who can... um, who creates it to start with, and imposing it from the outside is almost impossible. I, mean, right. I think you're right, that's right.
1: That's but it'll be interesting to it's see. It's very hard the- to deprogram people who come into the company. I mean, it's hard enough to deprogram those who come into a company like that, and that's why you know a company like Valve cannot expand exceptionally rapidly because if you bring thirty people in one department uh, who are used to having hierarchical ways of working, then this may be detrimental to the whole uh, equilibrium in the company.
0: Yeah, I assume you that happens
1: slowly in order to assimilate them, in order to and to deprogram them.
0: And I assume that happens, as you point out. Some people come and they don't just they just don't fit. Uh and they eventually leave, presumably, or either voluntarily or they're put, or they're fired because That's uh right, right. it's an alien environment. That's right. That's right. And some people just simply cannot function in it. Uh, it it's a little bit like an economics department, but um, <laughs> Academic life has a certain um, bossless nature to it. It's it, once you once you get tenure, so it it does have a little bit of the uh, some of that. And uh, of course, economists have their own culture and their own norms of of what's considered community behavior. I suspect that the Valve employees do a little bit better, and but maybe not. I don't know.
1: Oh, well, look, this is precisely right, and it's the reason why I I was interested in being part of that environment because it re- resembled so well the, the the world of academia that I know and love. Uh, and, 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 you know, the fact that I don't have a boss when I am, once, I'm, once I was tenured, I, I no longer had a boss. Um, and that doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility. It means that you take responsibility for what you do and you do it in a, at a collegial level with your colleagues. So, yes, I mean, Valve operates like a good academic department.
0: Yeah, the difference one is... One that
1: does not have a lot of dead wood. Yeah, that's the problem. Disability. To get rid of them.
0: Yeah, the difference is is that the peer review system in academic life doesn't work quite as effectively with the bonus tied to the peer review as it does probably at Valve.
1: That's right. And also, you don't have quantitative measures that you do have at Valve. Uh, because let's face it, you do something, you ship it, you see immediately. The quantity is going up and down, both in terms of revenues and also in terms of, uh, of, of the satisfaction of your customers. Whereas in academia, um, it is impossible to have such measures. And we shouldn't have that measures, such measures either because you know, our, our purpose as academics is not to please our audience. Sometimes our purpose is to upset them.
0: Right. Uh, you could have an article that isn't downloaded very often but is still incredibly influential.
1: But there's Absolutely. a relationship.
0: It's there. There could be some quantitative aspects to evaluating academic life, but I, I agree with you. I wouldn't push it too far. There are,
1: but I don't. I just don't like them. I think they're detrimental to good academic life. You know, when in academia we try to replace judgment with calculation, we mess things up.
0: Well, yeah, I think calculations over overrated generally, but uh, <laughs> that puts me in a minority in the profession. The profession is going in the other direction, don't you think?
1: Of course catastrophically so Yeah. and it, there is a f- fundamental difference between the social sciences and the real sciences in the real sciences <laughs> <laughs> um, if you tell me that person X has published you know 30 articles in nature of science I am prepared to take it for granted that they are very good physicists but in our neck of the woods because uh, you know we're effectively a priesthood with equations um, that's not necessarily, necessarily the case
0: yeah, I agree with you, but we're in the minority. Why, why do you think that uh, that has happened?
1: Oh, it goes back a long way. It goes back to the 1870s and the 1880s when economists entered the universities uh, because they needed to prove that they are the scientists of society, and they had and they they, they, they created uh, a, a false science whereby uh, classical mechanics of Classical mechanics of the 19th century were copied into mathematical models of exceptional complexity and aesthetic beauty, I've tried, uh, and the only way of closing them and actually you know, solving the mathematics that you've created is by making assumptions which ensure that these models have nothing to do with the really existing capitalism. So the more successful you were at the, in creating these models that gave you discursive power and academic power in the corridors of the in economics departments, the more irrelevant you were to explaining the real world. So it's a very peculiar failure.
0: Yeah, I've, um, yeah, I have mixed feelings, a little bit of mixed feelings about it. I, I certainly, um, I think we've gone down the wrong path. And my preference would be to go back to Adam Smith. I think he had the right path which is descriptive, narrative. I think we're, um, we're, we're more like historians than uh, physicists, and we should admit it. Indeed.
1: Indeed. We should go back to the classical economics position. Look, whatever your political or ideological or methodological take is, I think it is exceptionally worrying to all intellectuals who, you know, think, who think things through that today Adam Smith, David Ricardo... Uh, John Stuart Mill, Karl Marx, Friedrich von Hayek, even John Maynard Keynes would never get a job at Harvard University Economics Department. Never, under no circumstances. It's true. They wouldn't even be allowed to pass outside the, the department.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's actually that's a, that's an interesting um, idea for a. Um, a movie. I like that idea. I, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think Well, I'm not gonna make this movie, so I will say it. The idea of, of um, of any of those people standing outside the door and and trying to get in and saying, "But, but I'm the, I'm the guy who started it." And they're gonna. You're right. They wouldn't pass. They couldn't pass the exams.
1: That's right. It's like Jesus Christ not being allowed in church
0: yeah I don't know if you want to push it that far but yeah i i get the i get the, i get the analogy um might be a little bit overreaching for economists there to, that to make that point but um we've got a few minutes left let's let's turn briefly to Europe, which uh changed uh your life just like I think the crisis has changed mine um and we live in very interesting times. what is going on uh where do you think we stand now with respect to the crisis in Europe, and particularly with Greece, Which, uh, where you come from?
1: It's getting worse, uh, both for Greece and for Europe. And yet our elites are celebrating the end of the crisis, which is uh, quite preposterous. Well, look, what in brief, we created a common currency that was utterly ill-designed to sustain a major financial crisis like that of 2008. So when the the crisis hit in 2008, this uh, currency area started disintegrating. And of course, disintegration begins at the weakest link. And Greece happened to be the weakest link. You and I would not be talking about Greece today if Greece in 1999, by some miracle of politics and rationality, had stayed out of the Eurozone. The only reason why it is such a disaster and it's so significant in the world economy and Peeps with Greece dominates, has been dominating for three years now the headlines internationally, which is a a sign that something is definitely wrong with the international economy. Uh, The reason for that is because Greece was in the Eurozone. The tragedy, of course, is once you're in, you can't get out. You're trapped. And why? So on and so forth. Why are you trapped? uh, Well, People often ask me, you know, why can't Greece turn Argentina, like Argentina cut the peg with the US dollar and when its own way to value it and default it. And the, the answer is because Argentina had its own currency. It had a, a peg with a dollar, but it's very easy to cut a peg. You just do it. All it needs is political will to do it. But in Greece, we don't have our drachma, which is pegged with a Deutschmark. If we did, then we would just sever the peg. We have the Deutschmark. We call it the euro. But we don't have our own currency. So to actually get out means to create a currency from scratch. And it takes around eight months. At, you know, e- e- even at best it takes eight months. So this is equivalent to announcing eight months in advance the devaluation of your currency. Now, in those eight months every Tom, Dick, and Harriet is going to sell up uh, in anticipation in of the devaluation. And the, Take everything out of the country, so you need to have the army mounting the, the the borders and the airports and the ports, which means that Greece would have to get out of the European Union since you can't re-erect borders if you're in the European Union. So, given that Greece's uh, survival depends on free trade within the European Union, so it would be a major catastrophe. It will be going back to the Stone Age.
0: So, what what is <clears throat> given that they, that that's very, uh, either they can't do it or it's very hard to do. What's what is likely to happen then? And so, because what I read, and I don't read very carefully because I have too much to read already. But <laughs> what I read is, that ah, it's you know they're they're getting they're muddling through, and like you, my my first thought is that it's probably not true. Uh, they're they're whistling in the dark. But if you're right, and they the crisis is not getting better; it's getting worse. What's the, what's going to be the resolution? Or what do you think will be the resolution?
1: Well, a, a great depression in the periphery of Europe, which already is happening in places like Greece and Spain, you know, we're talking about unemployment that's going to reach 30% soon. It's, you know, it's, it's unbelievable in this day and age that we should have such unemployment rates. And, uh, you know, this is a, rein, a self-reinforcing depression in places like Greece and Spain. So the, the, either the, the euro is going to break up or you're going to have... Uh, a large part of Europe, being turned into Kosovo-like protectorates. Let me remind you that Kosovo, over which the United States and NATO waged the war in 1999, um, has the euro as its currency, even though it's not really a country and it's not a member of the European Union or or the the Eurozone. Um, It's got a mafia-ridden political system. It is more or less... uh, Ruled by decree from Brussels, and you know, and NATO troops keeping the peace, so to speak. And the only export of this uh, protectorate is its people who migrate in in droves. So th- th- that is, is a possibility. But I think that the eurozone is not going to survive that because the political pressures in play, places like in proud nations like Italy and in Spain it's going to be such that the whole thing is going to simply go belly up. But uh, the, the, the reason why we're having all this, just to, ke- to come to the to cut to the chase, is because in 2010, when a country like Greece, a state like the Greek state, went uh, bankrupt, was that Europe refused to, to allow it to default within the eurozone? It, uh, th- th- this was just a, a, a crime against humanity. Greece had a debt that was unsustainable, and so as to make sure that. Deutsche Bank and Finance Bank and Ben Bed wouldn't suffer more than they would have to, even though they were themselves insolvent and relied on the generosity of the German and the French taxpayers, uh, the, 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 great, the largest loan in human history was piled upon the shoulders of the weak and bankrupt Greek state, and this was effectively a con job. Um, the, Greek, the, the, the German people were being told, the German electorate was being told that This was an act of solidarity towards the Greeks, when in reality all that was happening was that the losses of Deutsche Bank were being piled on the shoulders of the German taxpayers. And when the German taxpayers realized that, and when the German taxpayers realized that, they hated the Greeks, and then the Greeks hated the Germans, and we've lost the plot completely, and the only beneficiaries of that are the Nazis.
0: Well, it's as you said. I think um, in a, quote, normal world, what would have happened is that Greece would have defaulted. Indeed. Although they might not have been able to have gotten such a large debt if they hadn't been part of the union, so it's kind of a right. weird <laughs> simultaneous unstable system um and what worries me is i'm 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 worried about a, a much larger thing than most people seem you know people seem to be worried about interest rates and unemployment and I'm worried about those things I'm worried about civilization um Indeed. these kind of things usually lead to war and revolution. They don't lead – I mean a depression is bad enough. But when you get unemployment at the levels that we're talking about in Greece and in Spain and possibly elsewhere, um, you don't just have people disappointed with how the economy's doing and vote for somebody else. They take up – they go to violence. And I, I wonder if democracy is going to survive in Europe based on this.
1: Well, it's not by accident that the last word that I uttered just before you asked me this question was Nazis, because in my country, a country that, by the way, um, fought very hard against the Nazis in the 1940s, tooth and nail, and we had in terms of, you know, uh, on a per capita basis, we had the largest uh, uh, death rate during the 1940s as a result of resisting the Nazis. In my country that has this proud anti-Nazi tradition, resistance to the Nazis, the Nazi party, it's not the neo-Nazi party, it's a Nazi party, a fully-fledged Nazi party, it is the third largest party in, in the Greek parliament as we speak. This is precisely what you're talking about. Europe and its elites are liable for what is happening now in 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 Central Europe in particular, Central Europe and Southern Europe, which is the revival of the 1930s in the most worrying of ways and uh, pushing populations into a corner with racism and Nazism being the only beneficiaries.
0: Is there um, anything attractive to be done?
1: There is a lot that we can do. Europe is rich. It's full of intelligent young people, innovative people. We have excellent uh, educational institutions. We have an amazing culture. And actually, we don't have that much debt either, compared to Japan or to the United States even. What we have is an idiotic uh, set of uh, rules and regulations and institutions for running our common currency area. We have a central bank without a state behind it, and we have states without a central bank behind them. We have uh, banks that are insolvent and states that are insolvent, and and we insist that the insolvent states borrow in order to bail out the insolvent banks. And when this is failing, then we reduce aggregate demand further by increasing taxes until the whole thing spins out of control. There are three steps we could take, very, very simple steps, without the need of constitutions, federation, anything like that, uh, that would put an end to this uh, tailspin. It's just not in the interest of the political elites, individually and collectively, to go ahead with those. And they are? Very simply, separate the banking crisis from the sovereign debt crisis. Um, instead of having the Spanish state borrowing on behalf of the Spanish banks, the Greek state on behalf of the Greek banks, the bailout funds that we have now created to deal with the crisis should um, inject capital straight into banks on condition that the shareholders and the bondholders are expropriated, new um, uh, governors are introduced, uh, and um, A large number of these banks is liquidated and cleansed. And then once this happens, like it happened in 1992 in Sweden, then these banks can be sold straight back to the private sector once they've been cleansed. That way, you decouple the banking crisis from the debt crisis, which you then kill off completely by having the European Central Bank take on its books, not by monetizing, but by issuing Bonds, that would be the equivalent of U.S. Treasury bonds, uh, a part of the debt which is consistent with the Maastricht Treaty. That is, a, the debt that every country has the right to have should be transferred centrally and managed centrally with the ECB. That's, I mean, it's quite straightforward to do if you want to do it. And that overcomes the moral hazard problem because you don't transfer all the debt. You transfer the legal debt and you leave the remaining part of the debt to the sovereign state to deal with it. And the third thing you need is you need some kind of investment spree in Europe, and we, you know, we have the European Investment Bank, which operates the buy- on simple, straightforward, free market uh, banking principles. It has, as we speak, Ghana, I know that because I've spoken to them. They have very interesting investment business plans um, waiting to put them in place. Like, for instance. Uh, uh, super-fast trains, Eastern Europe, and so on, and they are not allowed to carry on with them, to go through with them, to push through them, because of a silly rule that says that fifty percent of each and one of these investment projects has to come from the state, the you know the national government of the place where it's going to be to, to take place, and of course national governments are bankrupt, so it doesn't go ahead.
0: Well, I like some of those ideas, not so crazy about others, but the, the part that's um, – put put my opinion to the side. The only thing that stops those – the most important thing that stops those ideas from coming to fruition is the political power of the financial sector, which would be uh, unhappy <laughs> with that uh, first par- part of your plan. Um, that's right. And that's uh, – we've had the same problem right. in the United States – if I understand it correctly, both what you said and my understanding of U.S. law, we had a, uh, a law called FDICIA, the FDICIA, yeah. and that was supposed to, I think, do very similar things to what you just suggested to American banks that got in trouble. But instead, it was not invoked in the crisis of 2008. Does, indeed. And instead, um, banks were made whole, and the people who made the mistakes were allowed to keep their jobs to a large extent. Exactly. Which yep. is, You're um, precisely right. Which is immoral. You're precisely right which is immoral and destructive. It happens to be two. It's, it's bad enough that it's immoral, but it's more than immoral. Yes. It's destructive.
1: Indeed. And especially in Europe, where these... Imagine if you had exactly the same situation in America. And on top of that, you didn't have a federal government. And you had the state of New York trying to salvage Wall Street in that way and the state of Nevada trying right, to salvage the banks of Nevada. What would happen is that everybody would simply sink. Yeah. States and banks together. And this is what's happening in Europe,
0: my guest today has been Yanis Varoufakis. Yanis, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: Thank you. It was great fun.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.